Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the show. We've got a very, very important show today. Tensions are rising between the West and China, have been for a considerable amount of time, but there are also tensions emerging in pretty stark terms between members of the Western Alliance. Following a new pact struck between Australia, the United States and Britain, France has recalled its ambassadors to the US and Australia. Uh, this is in protest at Australia cancelling an order for French-built submarines and its uh, and the security pact which existed. So we're going to talk about, obviously, the emergence of China as a great power is a story which has been happening for a very, very long time. The collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991 left the US, broadly speaking, a global hegemon. But there were trends already existing, the US share of the global economy uh, shrinking. And despite that boost, we've seen the emergence particularly of China as a great power, increasingly asserting its own role. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the tensions that exist. Is a Cold War, this is a term obviously often thrown around. And the thing about the Cold War, I think it's worth noting, because I've seen a discussion which has been taking place on social media, which is uh, that a Cold War is not that pleasant in lots of ways. There's you get nuclear armed powers having a, start, a standoff, uh, but it's not the same as a hot war. But of course, in the actual Cold War, there were hot wars, not least in, for example, Southeast Asia, Afghanistan, uh, most strikingly, uh, large parts of Africa, Asia, and so on. So uh, as well as dictatorships, coups, um, and other proxy wars in Latin America. So is the comparison valid? Because we've not seen anything on those terms yet. But is it possible that these tensions could escalate, not least as China continues its ascent? Uh, and obviously, we've seen the financial crash and arguably COVID accelerate existing trends from uh, in terms of power from, from west to east. Now, before bringing our brilliant guests, we've got three uh, superb experts. We're always very lucky to have top-notch experts on this show. Three brilliant China experts who are going to unpack a lot of this uh, clearly for you. Before we do that, just normal housekeeping. Do support us on patreon.com forward slash ownjones84. That allows us to do documentaries. We're doing documentaries on wealth and power. We're going to Labour Party Conference and Conservative Party Conference, which is our annual tradition. So I'll be doing a interesting video i'm sure speaking to tory ministers mps and activists the things i do for you uh you can also support us in super chat as peter o'donovan has just done he's asked what would happen if the chat if uh if china gave afghanistan access to its nuclear missiles interesting but we will put your questions uh to the guests and we will thank you at the end so you 
Do click through to YouTube and then you can ask questions. Do like the video, helps the algorithm, more people watch it, um, and subscribe. Then you can get all these videos, a whole range of videos, our interviews, documentaries, and these live shows. Uh, and also do listen on the podcast, which is doing very well. We're very lucky to say it's one of the most listened to politics podcasts in the country. So do uh, leave a rating for that as well. That's enough for me. I am going to bring in now, very lucky to have uh, Kerry Brown, who is uh, who is Professor of Chinese Studies and Director of the Lao China Institute at King's College and Associate of uh, of, of well, a whole range of things here. I can see president-elect of everything from the Kent Archaeological uh, Society, affiliate of the... I mean, there's a lot. He's got a lot of hats. So we're very lucky to have you. Uh, great to see you, Kerry. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. Very well. Kerry, can we just start? I'm just interested in an article you wrote for Chatham House, which you're an associate of, which is, for those who don't know, a think tank specialising in, in foreign affairs, the leading think tank in this country. And you said for the UK, this PAX, which I've just referred to, tries to make a reality of post-EU life and having a meaningful security role. You speak about how fellow Europeans, such as the French, have been irritated because of their separate deals with Australia and underlines the reality after taking control, the UK's foreign and security policy is now decided in Washington. So you can just talk us through what is the pact? What does it actually mean in practice? And, and, and how has it caused all these fireworks we see? Yeah, I mean, the Australia-UK... Uh, U.S. Pact um, is basically the supply of nuclear submarines to the, to the Australians, which is which was why the French were irritated because they felt that they had the contract for that. Um, in terms of what it's actually going to do, well, uh, that's really unclear. Um, it's pretty clear that Australia has a defence relationship with America, which is very important. They've been rotating marines, I believe, in Darwin for a decade now, and when that happened. Uh, a decade ago, the Chinese were very, very unhappy. Um, Australia is very dependent on uh, American defence support. I mean, it's got, I believe, I, this is about seven or eight years old, this statistic, but I imagine it's not changed a huge amount. I think about 27 members of the Navy in Australia obviously looking after a vast, vast territory. So the security blanket that America offers in the Pacific is extremely important for China, for, for, for um, Australia. Um, they have a defence pact um, which has existed for a number of decades but has been regarded as um, moribund. It also includes the New Zealand's, which is why, you know, kind of it's a bit unbalanced. The question is really, though, what the UK is doing in this agreement, and that is um, puzzling. That is puzzling. So in terms of China itself, I mean, some commentators have said, actually, China did... I suppose what you would expect, they issued a key, uh, statements expressing their displeasure with the pact. Mm. But some people thought it was a bit of a copy and paste job. Actually, it wasn't, it wasn't, it, it, it was what you might expect from China, but it didn't go above and beyond that. But I mean, you think it's a diplomatic failure. I and mean, what, what, what's going on, I suppose, what does this mean for China? What does this mean for the rise of China? Well, China's been aware for a long time, I, I mean, probably 20, 30 years of the idea of containment. Uh, and this is, you know, that the United States has military installations throughout the region, uh, security agreements with Japan, with South Korea. It's got something like 30,000 troops in South Korea still. Um, it's got a security relationship with the Philippines. I mean, it's like a great a great wall of US alliances. Now, China is anti-alliance. It doesn't have formal alliances with anyone except North Korea. Uh, so that's the exception that proves the rule. 
And, you know, kind of it's uneasy at this idea of its territory, its strategic territory being pressed down on by the United States. The United States is technologically far in advance still of China, although China has uh, more actual vessels than the United States, I believe now, something like 500. You know, the United States has aircraft carriers. It has the ability to project its force right up to, to the edge of Chinese space. Um, so a lot of what China does, you know, in the South and East China Sea, it's really trying to kind of create this strategic space around it. Its mindset is we're the world's second greatest, you know, economy. We are a great player. Why is it that we have to have American ships, you know, floating by our space in ways which we would never be able to do, for instance, just off the coast of California? And this deal with the uh, Australians in particular um, is kind of part of this sort of narrative of containment which China is pushing back on. Uh, the only final thing I'll say is that the the odd thing about this kind of agreement is because, you know, who's not in it? Um, there's no real way in which you can kind of control this vast area or have much impact on it if you don't have solid alliances with people like Indonesia, Malaysia, Vietnam, you know, I mean, these are the real players in this region, you know, and of course, this doesn't affect that at all. Um, that's the space, particularly around the South and East China Sea, which goes 2000 kilometers into the Indian Ocean, which China is most um, intense on looking at. And it's actions that happen there as a result of this kind of thing that it will be most keen to follow. If we were going to kind of unpack, I suppose, where China, how Ch the Chinese uh, government saw its own position, I suppose, in the world. I mean, how, do, because obviously in the Western press, we see things largely from a Western strategic perspective. What, in terms of, you know, China's view of what happened to the Soviet Union, and I suppose the chaos that was unleashed following the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, plus its sense of, I suppose, colonial history. Of course, China was, uh, had this period of, as they would regard it, national humiliation. Uh, dominated and subjugated by European powers and, of course, Japan. Monstrous atrocities, of course, committed by Japan during World War II in China. I mean, what's their, you know, from their position, from how would you, if you like, explain the kind of, you know, Chinese perspective on, on, on these developments, given that historical and broader context? Well, I mean, the history you just referred to, I think, makes Chinese leaders, elite leaders, highly aware of the questions of risk of how to balance those risks and uh, to avoid disaster i mean to be almost obsessed by stability um and that, that's the strange thing i mean the xi jinping leadership is accused of being sort of you know muscular and very very kind of unusual in the way that it's so pushy and taking risks but it's really quite conservative because the idea really is that you just sort of try and pin as much down you use whatever levers you have economic uh, even sort of threat sometimes, just to try and control things. Now, that makes most sense for China in its region. It, it wants to be dominant in its region. It wants to be dominant in its region because it wants to control. And it doesn't necessarily want to control by kind of creating a, you know, Pax Sinica, you know, where it's kind of basically creating colonies around it, things like this, you know, governing places, being the policeman of the region. What it wants is for there to be predictability by it having, you know, the necessary levers to kind of basically uh, do the things it wants economically, 
um, in terms of creating stability around its borders um, so that it can continue to deal mostly with its huge domestic issues, which is still significant. Um, so that is a problem, of course, because it's asserting for that reason. It's not asserting because I think it's just in the business of being a hegemony. Mm. It's in the business of being this kind of hegemony because it serves its need for stability. That's its mindset. Now, that can be interpreted by many others in the region, particularly in Australia at the moment, as a real bid to kind of basically dominate, to be the overlord. Um, yes, I guess so, because China feels that's the best route to get stability. At the heart of that, of the fact, it's the kind of, you know, elephant in the room, really, that its political system is radically different from any other power in the region, apart from Vietnam and North Korea, but they're and Laos, but they're not really sort of players of the same league at all. And it, defi it, it defines this political system as a strategic asset now, not as a problem, as a strategic asset. It is the great power it is, it believes, because it's got this political system which gives it stability. And of course, people in the region don't believe and don't um, agree with that too. I mean, what parallels or differences do you think? I mean, we talk about, there's a lot of talk about Cold War, you know, a, a revival of a Cold War when it comes to China. And I suppose the Soviet Union, the difference there, the, the clash between the West and the Soviet Union, say <clears throat> pre-World War One clashes between the great powers, is the Soviet Union was attached to, a, in theory at least, to a broader ideological project. You had anti-colonial struggles, of course, which... Uh, you know, wrapped their claims for national independence from colonialism with with the, you know, some form of often ideology that accorded with the Soviet Union. Um, and you had various governments in Latin America and so on, which emerged in that period again with 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 claims for social justice, which again often looked to the Soviet Union as a counter to hostile Western governments. And you had that struggle going on on every continent on the earth. And that's not the same with China today, of course, is it? China isn't attached to a broader ideological project. So, uh, you know, what parallel are there strong parallels, or do you think this is this is completely overblown? And as I said in the introduction, there were hot wars in the Cold War. Of course, it did actually escalate, and millions of people did die in those conflicts. So, what's your thoughts? Is the, is the Cold War really a thing or not? Well, it's often used as a parallel, and I suppose people are looking into history to see if there's some map that we can navigate through the, the territory we found ourselves in now. Look, I mean, we are in unprecedented territory. Um, broadly, in the next decade, sooner rather than later, the world's greatest practitioner of capitalism is going to be a communist country. This is an unexpected um, outcome. It's not like the Cold War, where there was a clear winner. Uh, the problem is that there's no easy scenario here where there's going to be a clear winner, even if we come to kind of the sharpest of, you know, kind of outcomes. China is a nuclear power. I mean, America doesn't attack nuclear power somewhat sensibly. China is integrated into global supply chains, integrated into the global finance system. It is integral to answering uh, existential questions like climate change, uh, pandemics, as we've kind of discovered, um, you know, it's not avoidable. Uh, the Cold War and, you know, the First World War with their tragic outcomes and their kind of different outcomes were um, uh, kind of, at the time, they may have seemed terribly, terribly complicated, but there were limitations. There weren't sort of, there were easier boundaries. 
the problem is that there are no easy boundaries with what China offers. Its um, kind of mindset is radically different to Enlightenment Western powers. This is also a huge problem. I and mean, we're not dealing with an aspiring power that at least has a sort of common belief system. The hybridity and syncreticism of Chinese belief system historically and even today with, you know, Xi Jinping thought and, you know, kind of capitalism and all of these sort of fairly contradictory things, but sort of put together means that this is really complicated and trying to sort of deal with it with, you know, a kind of simple framework is really risky and most unlikely to work. Um, so the position that I think everyone is in now is, I think, just trying to give themselves breathing space to work out what to do. I, I suspect, though, the outcome is not going to be radically different. And that is, we're going to have to work with China, whether we like it or not. I mean, there is no choice in this. We have the illusion of choice. And these alliances give the illusion of choice. But actually, what do they change? The dynamics of China's economic rise are pretty much set in stone now. And the problem is, if, if it, it can economically and politically collapses, we also have a vast problem. There's no easy outcomes here, I'm afraid. It's not good news, but I'm afraid that's the kind of um, most realistic assessment. As, as you know, China lacks many regional allies, but across the world it is strengthening its relationships with certain governments, Latin America and, and Africa in particular. I mean, the official statements of the Chinese government, they would argue, well, actually, we don't have the intentions to dominate in the way that Western countries historically have, which, of course, China has been on the receiving end with pretty catastrophic consequences, that has to be said, which is, you know, very much burnt into the Chinese national consciousness. Um, what do you think it will look like? I mean, what do you, do you think, you know, many would say a unipolar world isn't a good place to live in. It led to a lot of uh, pretty catastrophic uh, hubristic interventions by the United States, uh, the co consequences of what we, we can see very clearly recently, not far from China. What, what do you, what's your sense there? Do you, you know, what will growing Chinese power look like? And what do you think about their statements, which make it clear they don't intend to replicate what Western countries did? Yeah, I mean, so in this whole debate about China's prominence in the world now, you get people leap up and down and go obsessively on about the Communist Party of China. And if that disappears, well, then we are basically going to be liberating the poor, oppressed Chinese people. I'm, I'm for complexity. I know some people rail against, you know, the, the fact that nuance is, you know, kind of trying to create moral equivalency and things like this. To me, I, I'm a realist, okay? Um, the issue is that you have through China and India, uh, you know, but China, because of the political issues, is a sharper issue. Uh, 1.4 billion people who are becoming significant actors. And the Communist Party of China, in a sense, is responding to a lot of their demands, the nationalism and things like this, uh, in many ways, messages the Communist Party uses, which it hasn't created, uh, but which it has sharpened and used to its own benefit. But it's got a root in what Chinese people want and they want a role in the world they like the status that china has and the question is you know we have in the west no moral right to say to these people you can't have that kind of role right. and we don't have an easy question when we kind of say to that we don't have an easy answer when we say to them oh you should have a different political model i think uh, chinese did look at political models in the past mm -hmm. that were available elsewhere 
and they don't feel that those worked. So in many ways, a um, actor like China appearing in the world now in the way it does is very ironically a victory of pluralism. Mm -hmm. We are living in a very pluralistic world and we are finding out, and I think it probably will be able to work, that you can have a world that does not need to have unipolarity, that has a kind of diversity. It will be a world needing constant vigilance and management. It will be a world where they're going to have to be significant compromises uh, on all parties. And it's likely to be a world at some point where the issues that China and India kind of pose with these new actors coming into the global system are going to be put into a very different context by the fact that we're obviously dealing with vast generic issues like climate change, which overshadow these kind of geographical issues and will probably mean that they become less significant. So in the short term, this is a very, very tough moment. In the long term, I suspect it will be manageable. And talk of war and conflict and these things, I think is not really an option. It's the illusion of choice. The bigger existential issues will lead this story. And the more you look at those, the more China actually is an ally rather than an opponent. Just a couple of final things. Um, I mean, you, you, you mentioned there that that question of the specter of war has been raised, most notably by Theresa May, the former British Prime Minister, who suggested that the new pact could lead to war over Taiwan. If China invaded the island, then the pacts would necessitate British military intervention, which would mean a hot war, let alone a cold war, China. What's your, what's your take on that? Well, I mean, the UK and the Integrated Review, which was a summation of kind of government foreign policy issued this year. It was a good document. It was issued by the Cabinet Office in Whitehall. Um, it talks about the Indo-Pacific. And so the investment being made by the UK in this mythical realm, the Indo-Pacific, is kind of really, really, uh, you know, kind of striking. Um, the question is, though, what capacities does the UK have to involve itself in these very remote kind of, you know, geographical issues. Our principal area is Europe and America. I mean, that's our territory. And the further we get from that, the less capacity we have. And I listen to some politicians in the UK talk about us involved in this kind of, uh, you know, pact, um, you know, this uh, pact between Australia and America. And I kind of think, what do we contribute beyond symbolism? It's interesting, the French recalled their ambassador to Washington and Canberra, but as far as I know, have left the one in London alone. I think we are seen as symbolic partners. What do we contribute beyond, you know, kind of that sort of symbolism? Uh, very little, probably, very little. Our, you know, our, our concentration is to look after ourselves here in Europe. And I think, you know, sort of, Theresa May was probably alluding to the fact that it's okay to kind of rhetorically bang the drum and say we're going to support our kind of big partners elsewhere, but we have to be realistic about what we can actually do. America and Australia have every reason to be deeply, deeply integrated and interested in the Asia-Pacific region. The UK is like anyone else. It's interested in trade, security, stability there, but as a, as a spectator, not as a participant. So that's what I think she was alluding to in this strange kind of involvement we have in this deal. Mm -hmm. Just finally, we had some questions from people watching uh, a lot about Afghanistan. Peter and O'Donovan and Attila Desix want to know what you think China will do as regards Afghanistan, obviously following the total victory of the Taliban. An oil pipeline, Attila Desix asks, 
And the other, um, to Juice Campwell, who whose name I ne- to do, he's a, he's a brilliant regular. I never pronounce his name right. And my friend Michael Walker at Navarra has sent me a message from him telling me how to pronounce his name. But I don't have it here. But he says uh, a guy called Roger Garside wrote mm. a book that the Chinese leader will be unseated from power and a democracy put in place by the CCP leadership. Thought so. Just wondering that Afghanistan and Roger Garside's book. I think it's called China Coup, something like that. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, so Afghanistan and the American withdrawal there, everyone says, you know, this is obviously in, in many ways of great interest to China. I mean, it is of interest, but I think it's not a very straightforward thing. I mean, China is involved, as, as David Brophy will, will probably comment um, later, in uh, some pretty, uh, you know, kind of difficult issues with its own, uh, you know, Muslim, mostly Uyghur uh, uh, kind of ethnicity population. I cannot see. Uh, the Taliban being uh, super supportive of this uh, right against China's border. So I think China has a quandary because it's very keen on having stability in Afghanistan. The American withdrawal has definitely not helped that, but it can't really directly deploy its own People's Liberation Army. There's no way it could do that. So it has to sort of be a security actor here for its own interests, but also it can't really do things overtly, which people don't immediately leap up and down and say, oh, there, you know, China's becoming a meddler and, and involving itself beyond its borders in ways that it didn't do before. So I think Afghanistan is a huge problem for it, potentially. On Mr. Garside's uh, speculation, I mean, it's true. People say Xi Jinping is sometimes threatened. As of today, I don't see that. Um, it's not likely that a political transition in China would be straightforward because it's never been straightforward elsewhere in much smaller, less complicated territories. Um, It is true that the political system in China itself acknowledges that it has to have some kind of reform. But how to do that has been a constant question over the last 40 years. Democracy is not an easy issue. Uh, for Chinese to talk about, not because they don't see some of the, uh, you know, kind of uses of democracy, but for two reasons. One is because uh, the complex system they've set up where they can't find an easy blueprint anywhere else to use. And secondly, because I think think they see what's happened in the US and Europe and elsewhere with democratic outlines lately, and they become much less idealistic. And I think those have to be recognised. Those two issues are an important factor of why China is resistant to political change, not because it doesn't want political change, but because it is very risk averse and Mm. doesn't see an easy route to do it. Professor Kerry Brown, we really appreciate you joining us. Uh, Do follow uh, Kerry, by the way, on B, that's B for Brown, B Kerry China uh, on Twitter, and you'll see many of his articles posted, which are really superb and go into detail and nuances, which you you won't often get, it has to say, in a lot of coverage in various media outlets but i really appreciate it, kerry it's such short notice uh, very lucky to have you so thank you so much and uh, i'll speak to you soon thank you very much thank you uh really delighted to have martin jakes who is a very 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 long-standing uh writer expert ri- written lots and lots of books in fact he's got a book coming out which is well he's got a book already out several books one is when China Rules the World, which I think is quite a self-explanatory title, but I'll, we will talk about some of those themes there. Martin, great to see you, by the way. You've got, you've got another book coming out, is that right? Yeah, but it's a couple of years down the road. Uh, I know the feeling. My current book is three, three years overdue, so I wonder if you can beat that. I want to get your thoughts first. You've done a uh, big thread on uh, Twitter, which I'm going to just bring up just to, just to give people a flavor, I suppose, of where you're coming from here, which is 
about the new deal, that the, the pact and China's decision to join the CPTPP trade agreement, which please do unpack for our viewers and listeners. Uh, but you say uh, it's revealing in the court of public opinion, China wins hands down. Uh, it's a military pact, you say, the new pact. It's typical Cold War mentality. Whatever the problem, the US always thinks first in military terms. So just tell me about that. And also, I suppose about is there continuity or is this actually an escalation compared to the Trump years? Uh, I think that uh, Biden's position on China is very similar to Trump's. I mean, the one thing which the, the greatest point of continuity with the Trump era is the attitude of Biden towards China. Um, and uh, this new announcement of the military pact uh, is a really uh, good example of that. Um, and my point really is that, um, <clears throat> you know, that America, it certainly has a problem in East Asia. Uh, and the problem is uh, it's declining influence. And if you go back just 20, 30 years, it, it's been quite extraordinary, uh, the decline uh, in its presence in the region. And the reason for that is because America has a declining economic influence and presence in the region. I mean, if you go back to the 1990s, America was one of or sometimes the leading trading partner of quite a few countries in this region. Now, I can't think immediately of any country, uh, maybe there's one or two, but any country where uh, the United States is the leading uh, trading partner. On the contrary, it's been completely overtaken by China, where in most countries, in fact, the vast majority of countries in the region now count China as their leading trading partner. And so America is finding itself you know, on the back foot. It's got nothing to do with a military challenge in the region. I mean, you know, this is this is um, this is America's uh, self-projection, if you like, uh, about what matters and what doesn't matter. China is not a military threat to the United States, except in a very limited defensive form. Um, but unfortunately, America, not just over the re recent past, but over a long history, has tended to think in military terms for the projection of itself and its force uh, in the world, and so. In this situation, what do they do? They reach for, you know, a military pact with Australia uh, and the UK as a way of sort of dealing with the so-called, you know, threat of China. But actually, what they need to address is the trading, you know, is the, the decline of the United States as an economic factor in the region. But you know, there's another irony to this as well, which is that uh, this was recognised, for example, in the Obama administration and so it was very heavily involved in the the tpp as it was called a new trading pact in the region which was deliberately designed to exclude china but what does trump do trump pulls out of tpp because he doesn't believe in these kind of uh, trading uh, arrangements and now china <laughs> is applying to join the tpp as it's now well it's now called cptpp getting complicated um so and so the united states is not part of any of the three major trading uh, agreements in the region they are belt and road which of course was a chinese initiative 139 countries affiliated to it not just in this region but around the world or a large part of the world eurasia and so on um uh, secondly the rcep agreement which was reached 
towards the end of last year, which has 15 countries and is the largest trading uh, trading agreement in the world. And if China joins the CPTPP, China will be in all of the three major trading uh, 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 agreements. And the United States is absent from all of them. Mm. Now, what, what's the, what's what, what, what about that for statecraft? It's interesting to talk about the US share of the world economy you mentioned, because it's, it's worth pointing out in quite stark terms. In 1960, their share of global GDP was 40%, and it's now fallen to about a quarter. So it's quite a steep decline. I mean, but kind of unpack this a bit, because, you know, we are seeing the rise of, we've seen the rise of China as, a, as, a, as an economic force globally for a very long time. Is this, do you, do you see this essentially as rather than a threat, you know, a response to any perceived Chinese military threat, it's a, a, a kind of defensive attempt uh, to respond to, to the inevitability of Chinese economic dominance? You wrote a book, of course, When China Runs the World. I mean, rules the world. Is that, is that, is that what you think, essentially? Yeah, I think that the rise of China economically is absolutely irresistible. I mean, you know, this is not a narrow political phenomenon or something like this you know history this is history this is what happens you know you get these set you know countries rise countries fall and united states has had a long period when it's done very well in the world but it's now in decline and the decline when did it start probably around about 1980 roughly speaking um but it's been really uh, accelerated greatly since the turn of the century and, uh, and especially after the financial crisis in 2008 so the United States is seriously on the back foot. And I don't think, I mean, you know, things could go wrong in China. They could have some serious economic problems, but that's been predicted for so long. You know, that was what that was what the West traditionally used to argue. And then, in fact, there was a big economic crisis. It never happened in China. It happened in the United States in 2008. And I, I just don't think anything is basically going to deflect in a serious way from the rise of China. China will be... You know, China's already by GDP measured by purchasing power parity already bigger than the United States by 20 percent by by 2030, 35 in those in, in measured by the, those terms, China will be twice the size of the American economy. It will be as big as the U.S. and China uh, and the European Union put together. So as Kerry was saying earlier, you know, this is the world in which we're moving into. And this is irresistible. So what does what what do we have to do? We have to learn to live with it. We can't just keep you know pretending that we can somehow undermine it, threaten it, weaken it, divide it, prevent it to arise. It's not going to work. It's, it, it, this is this is not being serious about you know history and and change. Uh, and we've got to we've got to find a way of dealing with it. And we find it very difficult to deal with it because the West has run the world for well over 200 years. And now we're not able to run the world in the way we have, and we'll be less and less able to, to do it. And this is a huge problem for Western governing classes because it's the presumption of entitlement, and that is what is being withdrawn. When Theresa May suggests there is the potential prospect of a hot war between this country, the United States, Australia, of course, and China, for example, over Taiwan, because of this pact, how serious a threat do you actually think that is in practice? Um, I, I would be very surprised if uh, there's a war. 
um, I mean, I, I, a regional war, a war over Taiwan, well, that would depend on China invading Taiwan. And I know that it's never denied uh, that it, it, it never said it won't do that. It's kept that option open. I think this is extremely unlikely. I just don't see China doing this because if China did it, it would, it would so affect China's position in the world. Uh, there would be so much uh, global opposition to it. I just can't see China doing it. It doesn't need to do it. I mean, Mao said to Kissinger, you know, oh, Taiwan, it can wait for 60 years. Um, you know, it's, in other words, if necessary, the Chinese are very patient, very, very patient. And they set, they play and have a very long view of the world. You know, uh, remember the uh, apocryphal quote from um, Zhou Enlai, who was, of course, uh, with Mao, was the key figure in China. And when asked by Kissinger, I think it was by Kissinger, um, uh, you know, what do you think of the French Revolution? He said, it's too early to say. <laughs> And and uh, you know so the Chinese, you know, the Chinese aren't going to. They're not. They're not. You know they're not like the United States going to invading this country, invading that country, and so on. They're not. You know actually China's record of this kind of thing is, uh, up, you know, it, it, it is close to zero. Uh, it just hasn't. It hasn't done. That. I mean, in the forty years since uh, the reform period, uh, apart from a bit of an eye, uh, the skirmish border skirmish of India. I mean, it's not fought any wars. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Um, is that you think potentially though? Maybe some hubris here, because it's often forgotten, but for a while in the 1950s and 1960s, some believed, including those who weren't aligned to its official ideology, believed that the Soviet Union could end up economically displacing the United States. Uh, Khrushchev famously, well, I think he slammed his shoe down and suggested um, uh, that the Soviet Union would achieve communism by 1980. Didn't quite pan out, unfortunately, for, for that particular prophecy. But, of course, the Soviet Union collapsed and left the United States more hegemonic than any time in its history. Could not the same happen with China? I mean, it is at the moment, it looks, you know, since the Tiananmen Square massacre of 1989, when, of course, it did use its state power brutally crush people who rose against it 
Uh, but since then, it seems to have remained very, very securely in power. You get occasionally protest strikes and so on, but no cohesive national movement or any potential alternative uh, movement that could displace its rule. But that could change. I mean, the thing about history is, you know, the illusion of every era is that it that it will last forever until it doesn't. So is it not possible something similar could happen to China? Well, first of all, I mean, no country rises forever. So, you know, one day China will, um, its rise will come to an end and it will, um, you know, it'll, it'll, it, but no doubt there'll be a certain plateau. And then in the longer run, no doubt China will decline. I mean, that's, that's what history. I mean, the extraordinary thing about China over the last 2000 years is it spent five periods where it has been either the most advanced or one of the most advanced countries in the world. So this is a culture with an extraordinary capacity for regeneration and rejuvenation and, uh, and reinvention. Uh, it, it, this, there's no other culture in the world that compares with this, that has this kind of record. Now, I think that, that the problem in the West is that because the word communist exists uh, in the form of the Communist Party of China and in the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, they think they're more or less one in the same. I mean, you get these people like Tom Tugendhat, who absolutely knows nothing about China, uh, but he reduces uh, uh, China to the Chinese Communist Party and basically thinks it's the same as the Soviet Communist Party, when in fact they are entirely different. They happen to have the same word. They have been influenced in some way or other by a, 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 a tradition. But the Chinese Communist Party is so different. I mean, China and the Soviet Union are, are very different. In fact, my argument would be that Russia has a lot more in common with the United States than it does uh, with uh, China. Um, and the Chinese Communist Party has, you know, we should pay much more attention to the Chinese Communist Party because we don't, we don't look at it seriously. We don't try and understand it. The Chinese Communist Party is an extremely dynamic organization which has managed to recreate and regenerate itself in an extraordinary way. I mean, you know, without th this has been the greatest period probably in Chinese history, certainly for the Chinese. And, you know, the Chinese Communist Party has been uh, the author of this extraordinary uh, phenomenon. Um, and uh, I, I think that, uh, whereas the Soviet Communist Party, let's face it, you know, the Soviet Communist Party never enjoyed popular support, the Chinese Communist Party, in a big way, the Chinese Communist Party has, because the Mao's strategy was to win the peasantry, which was the vast majority. Basically, the Soviet Communist Party's strategy was to win the proletariat, which is a China minority in Soviet society, and therefore was always on the defensive. And therefore, when collectivization and so on uh, came, it was very authoritarian in the way that it handled it. And that characterized the Soviet state. China is completely uh, different. Soviet Communist Party being on the defensive was not, you know, beyond a point like Second World War so on when it you know, performed heroically uh, 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 in, in, in cause against the Nazis. But basically, it was a very, very conservative and defensive organization which ossified. And that's why it collapsed. It just didn't, it didn't reform uh, the Soviet Union and eventually the thing disintegrated. This is so different from China. And I, I think that those... I mean, I understand the tendency to compare the two, but it is a trap. It's a trap 
which leads you to ask the wrong questions about China because somehow or other you think China's going to go the same way as the Soviet Union, not in a month of Sundays. Just a couple of final things. Um, I mean, if we think about, you know, the rise of China, what, what it will look like when it's a even more powerful uh, nation than it currently is, or even it becomes the global hegemon. It's not it's not out of the question that the that the US is displaced by China as global hegemon. And I suppose a lot of people would say, well, actually, US hegemony has been littered with pretty atrocious crimes, to say the least, uh, from the Vietnam War uh, to the Iraq War. For, you know, we've seen late, lately the calamity of of Afghanistan, where we're all familiar with the atrocities of the Taliban, um, less familiar with many of the atrocities committed by the US and its allies in Afghanistan, including recently uh, the killing of 10 civilians, the last uh, missile attack by the US in Afghanistan, which I'm afraid they finished as they went on for many, many years. But there's nothing, you know, unless we're essentialist about Chinese national character, that somehow China will it's somehow, because of its own history and its own trauma, uh, because lots of people who've suffered traumas in the past end up as oppressors, they will end up somehow different from the United States. Because if they have a global hegemony and they have economic interests which wish that country, uh, which wish China to use its muscle to defend those economic interests, it will just end up doing many of the same things that the United States does, maybe worse. I mean, look at its allies. It doesn't have a pretense to support democracy. Its allies include, you know, it supported the likes of the Burmese junta. So actually, could Chinese hegemony be significantly worse than the horrors that the world has endured through American hegemony? Well, of course, uh, we don't know the answers to the question uh, beyond the point of what China uh, would be like as the leading country in the world. It is going to become the leading country in the world. Um, but I would argue that it'll be very different from the United States. I mean, you know, when, you're right, we shouldn't be essentialists, but history is very important in the way in which a country evolves. The fact that the United States started as basically, you know, European settlement uh, and then moved across the uh, continent from east to West, and in the process, essentially near exterminated the native population of the United States, uh, and then subsequently, you know, had a very expansionist mentality, expanded across the Pacific Ocean, and so on. You know that that left certain characteristics in America. I mean, what you know, the attitude towards gun laws, for example, the the, the attitudes towards violence, the attitude towards military military strength is very important in understanding the United States. I don't mean that it's simple, but I think those kind of things are ignored uh, uh, too much when one's trying to understand the nature of the United States. Now, China's had a very different history. You know, even when it was dominant in its region with the tributary system, which has existed for, you know, until the last remnants of it were in the late 19th century, um, uh, and this was a system which was essentially a cultural system. It was the longest existing international system in the world. It was essentially a cultural system. China, China had a very hierarchical view of its uh, place in the region, but it didn't, by and large, with one exception, uh, which was in the Ming period, uh, the, uh, invasion, uh, the invasion occupation for a period 
of Vietnam. It was by and large not a military force. It did not require those countries who are tribute states, for example, to adopt leaders that were uh, of Chinese choice. The Chinese would would approve the choice, but did not seek to uh, control that. So I think the history history is very important. I think Owen, in in trying to understand the evolution of countries. And I don't think China, you know, China, unlike the West, look, from the word, from very early on, the, you know, Europe, of course, is a classic example, sought to uh, expand across the world and colonize the world. That was the essential mode of, 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 of uh, expansion of Europe. And, of course, the United States and, and Canada and Australia were part of this project uh, of European uh, expansion. And China's never done that. I mean, China had the possibility of doing it, but it's actually never done it. Um, uh, on the contrary, China, and why did China never do it? I think partly because, there's several reasons, but one important factor is that China's very large and really sort of running China uh, and governing China has always been extremely good and difficult. I mean, remember, we're talking about a country four times the size of the United States. Uh, 20, nearly 20% of the world's population. So the Chinese have always been, and I think Kerry made this point, you know, have always been very concerned, very preoccupied with order and stability uh, within China itself. You know, the world is uh, a second, is, is, is more and more important to China, but is secondary in its concerns because its primary concerns are the problems of governance. Just finally, Martin, I mean, we've just got, just want to put a couple of questions we've got put to us by Tad Campwell. I don't know if you know about this. The construction company Evergrande difficulties is claimed to be an issue for China being compared to the Lehman Brothers and the 2008 collapse. I mean, there has been lots of talk over and over again of potential bubble in the Chinese economy, property and so on. And it's quite an interesting economy, isn't it? Because you get uh, what's often claimed to be the private sector. It's actually more of a hybrid um, model. And actually, obviously, you have the Communist Party at various levels of private companies. Uh, you have state investment banks, which have huge impact on the decisions uh, made by those private companies or so-called employee-owned companies. I'm not sure they're in reality could be described as such. So, yeah, I'm interested, you know, what what, what Tad says, what Tad says um, on that. And Peter Donovan asked about the United States getting freaked out about China developing ballistic missiles that could take out their aircraft carriers. I don't know much about that either, to be honest. Well, uh, on the on the Evergrande uh, question, yeah, I mean, there. Th this is a very big company. Uh, was established, uh, I think, in the late eighties, early nineties, originally. I think it, maybe maybe I'm slightly wrong. Maybe it's in the late in the nineties, uh, which grew uh, hugely. Um, of course, property has been a very important part of the Chinese economy, um, and uh, this the, the company has got into. Uh, terminal debt, essentially, and the Chinese will have to find a way, uh, the Chinese government will have to find a way of dealing with this. Um, uh, there was actually quite a good piece on this in The Guardian the other day. Um, I, th I think that they will, you know, I don't think it's going to, and I, I don't think that the expectation is that it's going to, you know, result in a kind of uh, 2008 Western-style financial crisis. I think the Chinese will be able to find their way through it. But it's a big, it's important moment because, you know, uh, 
uh, it, it's facing new challenges. I mean, you know, the, the, the rise of the tech companies and the power of the tech companies is an, another example of a challenge the Chinese are facing. But at least the Chinese are facing up to it because the, America's never faced up to the, the growth of the, and the power of the tech companies. We, although now I think there's growing skepticism and, and doubt and criticism of their power, but no one's really done anything about this. Um, on the question of the ballistic missiles and so on, I mean, there is, look, there is a kernel of important point here uh, uh, hiding away, which is that, um, I mean, people, in, pe people talk about China's militarization of the South China Sea. Look, let's be honest about this. The militarization of the South China Sea started with the United States. They have frequently an aircraft carrier, aircraft carrier group in the South China Sea. Mm -hmm. They uh, operate on a daily basis uh, surveillance flights along the economic, uh, the maritime economic zone of border of China every day. Um, so this is a constant presence in for China and. Do you think the Chinese like that? Would you like that if it was happening to Britain? The mm -hmm. Chinese are doing it to Britain? I think not. If America certainly wouldn't like it if it was doing that, but this was happening on the Florida coast. So I, I, I utterly understand the Chinese resentment to this. So what do they do about it? Because they've always been militarily so far behind the United States. Well, you know, they've developed uh, uh, um, a, a missile which can uh, basically uh, take out a, a, a American aircraft carrier um, and um, without going into the technical details of it. And uh, this, this is, so the Americans are, are sort of, uh, uh, because the aircraft carriers have been so important to America as a global power, um, uh, they, they are, you know, they're, they're having to reflect about, you know, how, how do they keep some kind of military threat to China. Uh, alive, but it, this is this is a technical detail, if you like, for the time being. Martin, we're we're very lucky to have had you. So thank you so so much for spending time again at very short notice. Um, do follow Martin on Twitter at Mart M A R T Jax, and um, that's J A C Q U E S. Um, but really appreciate it, Martin. Good luck writing the book. I know the pain, the trauma. Oh, uh, I'm sure we'll persevere and overcome. Uh, but take care. I'll speak to you soon. Thanks, Dad. Cheers. Um, I'm going to bring in our next guest, who I need to apologise to, David, because I we've overrun and we've left you waiting way too long. So massive apologies for that. Uh, very lucky again to have David, who is the brilliant writer of China Panic, Australia's alternative uh, to paranoia and pondering. And uh, David, I should say, is live from Sydney in Australia. David, firstly, welcome. And secondly... Uh, What's your take on this alliance? And and uh, Mike Knotts asked, so this is a good question for you. What does the Australian government think they are doing? So what, what's your take on the alliance and mm. I suppose what Mike's saying about Australia there? Uh, hi, Owen. Thanks for the invitation. Well, I think alliance might be uh, not quite the right word for it. We have to, there's a huge amount of theatrics in the announcement uh, a couple of days ago, but we have to have to separate the substance from the hype. And it's, it's, it's unclear whether or not there are actually any new strategic commitments uh, involved in this in this agreement. What we have, at least in terms of the submarines, is a statement of intent that Australia is 
saying that it wants to be able to participate in military action alongside the United States, uh, somewhere close to China, up in the South China Sea. That's that's the significant difference between conventional submarines and, and nuclear submarines. That's that's really what it's saying. Um, but of course, you know, the submarines are not going to be built potentially for another 20 years. Um, so in terms of actually changing the strategic calculus right now, there's, there's, um, it's hard to see how it how it does that. Um, to go to the bigger point as to what Australia is actually pursuing here, I think this, I think this sits within a, you know, a strategy that Australia has really always pursued um, from the moment of colonization. Really, Australia has, whether you put this down to the anxieties of a settler colony in Asia or, or what have you, but but a strategy that involves uh, demonstrating its relevance to a, a more powerful. Uh, imperial patron that can dominate the region. That was Britain, of course, for a long time. It's been the United States for the last 60 to 70 years. Um, and so the foreign policy establishment in Australia uh, are deeply wedded to this, uh, this mission to uphold American primacy in the region. Um, and, and to do that, you know, there's been a significant shift in the last three to four years. They've decided that Australia needs to step up and do more to... Um, uh, as they say, to share the burden in um, taking on China. Um, they're also very interested in embedding an American military presence on the Australian continent uh, as well. Um, and so some of the more, I think, important elements of this agreement are things that are not getting that much attention. Mm -hmm. We're likely to see an increase, I think, in the American troop presence uh, on Australian soil, probably visits of warships and submarines spending time in, in Australian ports. That is um, that is more in the short to medium term. Um, I, I think the, the the benefits that Australian hawks uh, imagine coming out of uh, coming out of this agreement. I mean, David, one of the things I'm interested in is there are many in the West who are very opposed to any attempts by the West to ratchet up tensions with China um, to create, you know, to essentially embark on a a new Cold War with with China, but at the same time, aren't supporters of the Chinese regime and would, for example, particularly point to the treatment of Uyghur Muslims in China. And I'm just interested yeah. in 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 fleshing out that as a coherent position. So, what's your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, I know Xinjiang pretty well in terms of my academic work. It's actually the part of China that I I know the best, um, and. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I do think it's, it's the, um, it's the position that we need to adopt at this point in time, you know, being anti-war and, and, you know, I'm, I'm not as sanguine as the previous guest that, that, that this is just going to work out. I mean, I do think that we need to be um, organizing and mobilizing anti-war sentiment. And, and we should be saying very clearly that under no circumstances should Australia or anyone else um, contemplate uh, going to war against China. But that doesn't require us to obfuscate the state of affairs uh, internally in uh, other countries around the world. I mean, if we just take Xinjiang, people are people are still disappearing. People are given being given incredibly long sentences on on bogus national security charges. There's a severe repression taking place. It's had devastating consequences for the um, for the people of that region. Now, the fact that that is going to be picked up and used as as propaganda by um, China's rivals. Um, is, is, it's inevitable, but it doesn't change the facts um, on the ground. You know, China, China would be well advised 
not to provide these talking points to its uh, to its rivals by carrying out these um, this campaign of of repression. Um, but I also think you know going back to that point about you know building anti-war sentiment and and trying to generate some countervailing forces that can can slow or stop this momentum to to confrontation. I I just don't think we're going to be able to to do that if. You know, there are a lot of people out there who justifiably are concerned by what they see in China um, and, its, and its domestic politics. If we respond to those concerns with silence um, or, or worse yet, just dismissing this stuff as, as fake news, I, I don't think we're actually going to be able to find the audience we need um, to, to cultivate um, a, um, you know, opposition to this, this drive. I just think we need to take these issues and, and give them a, a different framing. You know, China is not the only country in the world today to be abusing human rights in the name of counterterrorism. I mean, our governments are just as guilty of that as as China's. And, you know, once we situate those things, not in a Cold War framing, but it's just on the basis of the principles at stake here, you can, you know, you can see how there's a possibility to build alliances here around a politics that is both anti-war and, you know, anti-racist, anti-Islamophobia. I mean, that's, that's certainly the kind of anti-war movement that that I'm interested uh, in building. I mean, I'm interested in, as you say, feeling maybe less sanguine about this because, as, I mean, Theresa May's not really right about lots of things, let's yeah. be honest. But she did suggest that this could, you know, she she brought the spectre of potential military conflict as a consequence. So what yeah. what do you think? I mean, you know, and I, I said we I went earlier. You know, there's obvious, very striking differences between the Cold War, between the Eastern Bloc and the West. Um, yeah. You know, for for the reasons I said earlier, but would you, do you, do you think there are parallels, and are do you think there could be a hot, some form of hot conflict, or do you think there could be proxy? You know, in the same way in the Cold War, you yeah. have these hot wars elsewhere. Is that ever possible? Well, the question of the you know the precise applicability of this terminology is a, is a bit of an academic question. I mean, you could say that I don't think we have the same fracturing of the globe that you saw in um in the cold war i mean the economic dynamics are quite different obviously you know america is still heavily invested in in china australia has still has a huge trade relationship with china when we talk about chinese gdp a lot of that economic activity is being done by foreign corporations um but at the same time i mean that economic dynamic is obviously not um it's not entirely you know acting as a break on the situation at the moment and obviously one of the other key difference with the first Cold War is that, you know, there is this um, upward trajectory to China's economy that is that is calling into question, um, uh, you know, American dominance, at least of Asia. You know, we have to remember that coming out of the last Cold War, what America said was that it would, you know, would not allow any any competitor to dominate any sub-region of the globe to to be able to sort of organize the economy of any particular sub-region of the globe around it, um, because that would provide a platform for someone else to challenge uh, America's global dominance. And that's that's still um, that's still America's position. So, I mean, China's economic growth, you know, it, it creates this, I mean, Chimerica that people talked about, this, this intertwining, it's still a reality to a certain degree, but it also, economic growth makes the situation more dangerous because it, it provides a certain timeline um, right, in which if someone is is wants to put China back in its box and um, and um, you know make sure that China remains in a subordinate position to the United States, there's only a certain time frame in which um, that might be um, that might be done. And that, I mean, that also speaks to the question of the submarines, by the way, because you know they're not coming online until 2040. 
I, I don't think that the the timeline that that people are working with towards China, um, you know, I, I don't think 2040 is the um, the date that they have in mind. Um, you know, so I look. I I mean, I think Australia is always Australia's actions can never be entirely determinative in a situation like this. You know, Australia is quite a minnow um, in the larger picture of things. Australia. You know, as they say, Australia wants to fight China to the last American. Um, you know, Australia wants to um, remain a, a privileged ally of the global hegemon. Um, it doesn't want America's influence in Asia to diminish because if that occurs, then America will just lose interest in Australia as well. Um, and at that point, Australia is left as a, um, you know, a small um, um, economy. Uh, on the margins of an Asia um, in which 10 to 20 years down the line, there's not just going to be China that is dwarfing Australia economic and politically, it's going to be a whole range of countries. Um, and, you know, Australia has, this is something that is is, is really unthinkable, uh, I think, for a lot of policymakers in, in Australia. Australia's always felt in a position because of that relationship with some imperial power that it is in a position to... Uh, itself shape the region to its liking um, in its, um, yeah, particularly in its 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 most immediate subregion of the uh, the South Pacific, where it it acts more or less independently um, as the the hegemon, but I, I think is very anxious about its ability to do that without the Americans um, standing alongside it. Um, in terms of kind of Chinese, the, the attitude of the Chinese re regime. If I were them, I'd, I'd look at the West and think they're in economic relative decline, um, the United States principally. Um, the military adventures of the United States in the last 20 years have been a disaster for the US in terms of blood, treasure, and its strategic position. Mm. Afghanistan, most strikingly, I suppose, a trauma only comparable to its defeat in Vietnam, but Iraq... Uh, you know, essentially the net consequences were hundreds of thousands of dead, uh, fueling of extremism, and Iraq essentially sucked into the strategic orbit of uh. the West traditional foe, Iran. China should, would look at the, you know, I, I would look at the West and think that is, this is an empire in steep decline. <laughs> and this is really ours for the taking now. Do you think that's how they see it? You can certainly find uh, people crowing in China um, from that, that sort of perspective, but you'll also find people who are more circumspect about the situation. You know, we have to remember that America winding up Afghanistan, essentially, you know, essentially drawing a line under the, um, the wars in the Middle East. That's been justified, of course, by the need to focus um, the energy on China. And, and the fact that Biden is willing to cop so much criticism for doing that, I think, can be read in a way as the, you know, showing the, the seriousness with which they, they, take that, um, they take that task. So, um, no, I mean, I, I, I don't think it's game over um, in terms of um, America's position in, in East Asia. I think it would be quite dangerous to, um, to assume that. Um, and look, fundamentally, I just don't, I just don't have confidence that um, the people making decisions around these kinds of things are going to be behaving in what we imagine to be a, a rational way. I mean, do we, do we really think that a, 
you know the, the you know the elite in the United States are going to just sit back um, and allow their position to slide without being tempted at some point to make use of this massive military dominance uh, that they still have against a country a country like China. I think it's I just think it's dangerous for us to to make that bet, which is why I you know why I do approach this. Um, not just as a China scholar, but as an activist. I mean, I do think we need to be looking around to see where where is the opposition going to come from? Um, how do we revive the anti-war movement? Mm-hmm. I can't speak for Britain, but, you know, forces like that in Australia are at a, at a pretty low ebb right now. Um, and that that's something that worries me. Uh, just a couple of the final things. I mean, you know, I, I spoke about this before with the two previous guests, but I mean, do, you, do you think China is on its way to becoming the global hegemon? And what do you think that would actually look like in practice, given the statements of the Chinese government that they wouldn't seek to replicate, I suppose, a Pax Americana type situation? What do you think? Look, China's rising in a really crowded, a really crowded region. Um, you know, I, I don't think that, that it has an expansionist ambitions. Obviously, it's looking to resolve the Taiwan question in its favour. You know, um, but I don't think that that is, you know, going to lead to the dominoes falling um, and the rest of Asia just being reduced to to vassal states or anything like that. These the scenarios that that gets sketched out. Um, you know, I'm. I mean, often the debate gets framed in terms of you know unipolar American dominance um, versus multipolar system. You know, I don't think we're going to be living in a world in which China is this unipolar hegemon anytime soon. I'm sort of agnostic about that transition if we just frame it um, in those terms. I mean, I think that the world is still going to be a dangerous place, riven by um, imperial rivalries, um, whatever the outcome of this particular conflict uh, for Asia is, is going to be. I mean, I, I do think that China, you know, I do think that there are, there are features to the way that China exerts its influence that are different um, to the way that the West has um has behaved. You know, China's clearly, you know, it's not as interested in opening the door to private capital uh, in the developing world. So, it, you know, it's it's looking for political alignment. It's looking for large investments. It's looking for resources. It's not, it's not looking to restructure the societies of the developing world in the way that the, you know, the way that the West has. Um, you know, I can understand why there's certain parts of the world have, that have been subject to the dictates of Western capital and have had no choice um, in that might be optimistic about the possibilities that um, that working with China um, with China might um, might present. You know, and, and sitting in the West, I'm, I'm I sort of feel you know who are we to say that you know they shouldn't um, pursue those options? I mean, the, the record of Australian uh, involvement in the Pacific has been one of you know environmental destruction and neglect um, essentially, and now. Um, <laughs> you know, a disastrous, you know, um, uh, neglect of any significant action on climate change that's going to drown countries um, in that in that region. So, you know, when I think that that's that's sort of what we what we have to offer these countries, um, you know, I, I don't um, I think we just have to recognize that, you know, there's nothing in China's makeup that's going to prevent the same sort of corruption um, bullying, you know, environmental degradation that we see, um, you know, that the, the history of Western um, economic activity elsewhere is, is, is littered with. And I also, I also think there's nothing in China's makeup that would prevent it from one day making more use of the military instrument if it felt that it was, 
you know, necessary to do so in, in its interest, getting drawn into um, into some, um, you know, military engagement. So, you know, we shouldn't mourn for the um, for the end of, you know, um, a Pax America that, that never existed. Um, but there's nothing particularly that excites me about the transition to a, a multipolar world. I just think we, you know, what we need to be doing is, you know, having a developing more transformative vision of, of international relations um, that is, um, you know, not just picking sides in these rivalries, but is actually thinking about how we can diffuse and de-escalate these, um, these tensions that are just going to keep arising and plaguing um, efforts to actually resolve some of the, the huge crises that are facing us in, in the world today. Just finally, then, um, I mean, I, I'm interested in what you think in terms of the long-term stability of the Chinese government, because mm. you know Martin Jakes's argument, as you as you heard, mm. is essentially the Chinese government has far more domestic legitimacy than the Soviet regime ever had. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm interested. In, do you think, obviously, 1989, there was there was an exception there. There was a, a pretty substantial movement against the Chinese mm. regime, and you do get examples of dissent expressing themselves in various parts yeah. of China. What's your thoughts on that? And and finally, just to kind of, that's what built on what you said earlier, but your advice yeah. to those listening or watching this in terms of who who want to oppose any ratcheting up of tensions, what, what your kind of final suggestions are on that? Yeah, right. Well, um, look, there's, there's huge pitfalls, of course, with opinion polling in a place like China where, you know, people don't have you know there's there's no there's no obvious alternative um to the people who are running the country right now um but it's i you know i think it is the case that there's um you know the communist party is is um sitting pretty comfortable uh right now in, in china i think the sorts of impetus um to activism and, and militancy in the, the 1980s i i mean I, I think we're living in a different world right now and i think that you know, a lot of those, um, a lot of those issues are, um, you know, not the, the, the dynamics of politics in, Ch- in China today is, is quite different. And I, you know, I certainly think the attraction of liberalism for young people in China can be easily exaggerated um, by people, people in the West, um, particularly, of course, when it's set up as a comparison between China's system and what it is delivering for people in China right now and the pretty obvious dysfunctionality that we see in um you know, liberal democracies uh, elsewhere in the world. I mean, COVID, I think, is a pretty good, uh, pretty good example of that. I mean, I think a lot of people in China are quite horrified at the fact that countries like the US just let hundreds of thousands of people die um, mm-hmm. without really making much effort to, to do anything about that. And people are pretty happy about the way that China was able to mobilize, you know, via its, um, um, you know, through its more authoritarian system to actually contain the pandemic. I mean, there, there are other examples. Obviously, there are, you know, there are dissenting communities. Um, there are, you know, there's there's just deep-rooted disaffection and alienation in, in parts of, you know, um, quote-unquote minority communities in Xinjiang, Tibet, um, so on. There's, um, you know, there are brave young activists who are, um, you know, trying to Get factory jobs and organize the working class uh, in China. Um, there's there, there's people taking to the streets to protest 
all over China on a daily basis. Um, but we're not looking at some sort of um, a volcano um, ready to pop um, the way some people would like to um, would like to imagine. So uh, you know, I certainly. I mean, you mentioned the the Roger Garside book before. This notion that there's a coup about to take place and someone from the Politburo is going to off Xi Jinping and um, you know introduce democracy. I mean, this is this is a fantasy. Funnily enough, that book actually just inspired a long article in the um, the main newspaper here today, talking precisely that you know the um, the Quad should be um, openly advocating a coup in China. Um, we need to prepare the ground for this because it's it's about to take place. Um, so I guess you know you asked me for advice. I mean, one piece of advice I think is just to be quite sober um, about the the possibilities for you know resistance to emerge inside China. Um, as much as you know, we would like to see the people of China um, having more say uh, in in their affairs and. Um, that, um, you know, I think we need to look for opportunities, of course, to, um, to lend support to people um, mm -hmm. in places where, where we can. Um, and, you know, going back to what I said, I, I, you know, I just think we need to, we, we need to present this, you know, our opposition um, to military conflict and, and the military buildup. Um, it has to be part of a package, you know, that we have to actually be able to, convince people that this is part of a package um, that is pointing towards a better world that is against repression, that is against um, racism and, and discrimination um, and, 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 and win people to the view that, that the kinds of policies that are being advanced in the name of those, those very high-minded things like human rights are, are not going to do anything to, to achieve those um, objectives. I mean, they're not going to do anything to achieve those things inside China but they're also going to endanger those things um, outside China. You know, the, the push to confrontation in China, in, with China in Australia, has been accompanied by um, a whole barrage of security legislation that is threatening civil liberties here. Uh, it's making our societies more racist um, as these tropes of Chinese Australians mm -hmm. as um, a fifth column for Beijing have been mm -hmm. well and truly well and truly revived, you know, so we need to, we need to connect these issues. I mean, people concerned about civil liberties, people concerned about racism. Now, of course, we have the nuclear issue, you know, people concerned about nuclear proliferation, um, environmental issues. There's the, there's a skeleton of some sort of coalition that could be built around these issues. It's just that, you know, we need to, we need to go out and build it because the right, the conservatives have been very effective, I think, in, um, in articulating a whole set of issues in in a particular way around China, there's made people feel that you know, well, if I'm I'm against what they're doing in Xinjiang, then yeah, you know, I'm going to go along with these get tough on China measures. We need to really um, we need to break apart the logic that is um, pulling people in that direction and and show how these issues can be can be articulated in a in a different way. David, we're, we're so lucky to have had your expertise uh, at such length. Gone, We've gone into a lot of... Sorry more... about that. No, 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 sorry. That was that was excellent. That was absolutely excellent. It was so thorough and detailed, but also very accessible for, 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 for everyone. Uh, and I've been reading through some of the comments and people are extremely appreciative. Um, and the least people could do, of course, as I've said, is to get your book, China Panic, which will goes into... A huge amount of detail about some of the issues that we've we've discussed with you but david really really appreciate it. i know it's quite late there what time is it Thanks, no, no it's, it's it's um 
What, what it's been time? A pleasure. Yeah, what time? 10. Twenty past ten. It's good timing. Twenty past ten. Yeah. Okay. So we've de- definitely you can now relax with what you've got left of the evening. Well, cheers, David. Really appreciate it. And thanks uh, so much, Owen. Take care, buddy. Take care. Bye. Well, that was incredible. A uh, very educational experience from all three guests. Uh, it's brilliant to be able to have this long form format where we can go into the issues in in great detail. A lot of the coverage of China in the Western press is not ideal uh, for those who wish to have a well-rounded understanding of the situation. So I hope we've done our best to rectify that with the brilliant contributions uh, from all three guests. Now, uh, in the coming days, we are finally, and I've been talking about this a lot, uh, tomorrow we're filming our documentary about wealth and power in Britain. We're going to a landed estate. We're going to, uh, this. I don't know if people saw this, it's a, a sky pool in uh, Nine Elms in London. It's this uh, luxury swimming pool in the air in a community with huge amounts of deprivation. What we're looking at is wealth and power in a de- deeply unequal and fractured society. And you made that possible on patreon.com forward slash Owen Jose 4. That's how we pay union wages to the team who produce those documentaries. And we've got lots of documentaries coming up. As I said, we're going to Labour Conference. I mean, I, don't, I mean, Labour Conference and Tory Conference, I don't know which one I'm dreading more. Uh, it's certainly going to be an experience uh, in both places. Uh, but we're interested, I mean, you know, in your thoughts about the issues we talk about there. Um, so I'll be asking people on Patreon to come up with their ideas, who we talk to. I'm sure we'll be chasing after lots of Tory ministers. That's generally what we do in those situations. Um, but again, you made that possible. So thank you so, so much. I'm also going to thank the people who also made that possible, who are the people on Super Chat today, uh, like Peter O'Donovan, Attila De Six, uh, Tad Campwell. I'm going to learn how to pronounce your full name properly. That's my mission for this week. Mike Knotts, Mark Gorman, Blue Deck, uh, David Baratta, another brilliant supporter of ours we're very lucky to have. Uh, we've got loads of interviews to come up as well uh, with a whole uh, a whole range of people actually this week. Um, let me just have a quick shifty. Who we, who, we, who we got coming up this week? We have, oh yeah, Omid Jalali, for example, the brilliant comedian. So that'll be fun. So it's going to be action-packed. So thank you, everyone. Do like the video if, you, when, if you're watching on YouTube and on the podcast. Give us some stars. That just encourages other people to listen. I am going to have a cheeky little Sunday roast now. I hope you're all enjoying your Sundays as well. Um, take care, whatever you're doing. Thanks again to our brilliant guests. And I was, oh, ah, I should say this as well. Labour conference, we need to work out what we're doing. What I might do on next Sunday, we normally have a live show at 12 o'clock. However, I think we're filming our documentary that day because we want to get it out by Wednesday, basically. Um, So I might pre-record a kind of panel discussion or maybe do it on Saturday. I'll let you know anyway. I'll keep you informed. But uh, we will be doing lots of Labour Party coverage and Tory Party coverage. Um, Oh, I'm sorry. It's, It's like an anxiety dream. Um, I'll see you very soon uh, from Brighton and Manchester. Uh, Take care, everybody. Lots of love. See you soon. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.